Hello and welcome to Walkley Talks. This is the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. In this special series, we present sessions from a recent symposium to mark the 50th anniversary of the Australian newspaper. These sessions were recorded with assistance from Sky APAC and Macquarie University. Thanks for the support. It's my great pleasure to introduce our um, second keynote speaker, Mark Day. Mark has been a journalist for 54 years, during which time he has been a copyboy, cadet, reporter, editor, publisher, columnist, proprietor of newspapers, magazines and radio stations. He's been a radio and television current affairs host, an author and a blogger. He is a former publisher and editor-in-chief of The Australian and has contributed a column to its media section since its beginning in 1999. Mark is going to be talking to us today about the proprietorial model. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming. Thank you to Professor Murray Goot and Bridget. Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, in the manner of housekeeping, uh, I must uh, follow uh, um, Sally Young yesterday with a disclaimer or two. I'm a freelance journalist. Uh, I was employed by News Corp um, uh, until, well, from 1960 to 1978, but I left the uh, company. Uh, as publisher of The Australian or later editor-in-chief of The Australian. I spent 20 years away, but I've been on the contributors list since the establishment of the media section in 1999. But um, I am still a freelancer, and the following views are mine and not those of News Corp. Just thought you'd want to know that. Um, now, in the, uh, I prepared this, uh, this uh, talk before yesterday, and necessarily some areas I cover will be a repeat of some of the elements we talked about yesterday. Um, <clears throat> but today I want to put the case for the proprietorial model of newspaper publishing, and I have a very simple starting proposition, and that is that without Rupert Murdoch as an old-fashioned proprietor, you wouldn't have had the Australian 50 years ago, you wouldn't have the Australian today, and as a consequence, you wouldn't be here today. It's fashionable around the world to speak ill of Rupert Murdoch, but I want to defend him, warts and all, because without his vision, his enterprise, his tenacity, and at times his pure cussedness, Australia would not have had the forum that the Australian has provided for us to debate ourselves, to debate our directions, to, uh, to debate our legal, moral, and commercial frameworks, all of which for the past 50 years have helped shape what we are today. And it's precisely the individual idiosyncrasies, the bees in his bonnet, the shifts, the somersaults, the backflips, the big calls, the wrong calls, the missteps, and yes, his triumphs, that we have uh, in Murdoch's life and career, uh, they have brought meaning to the Australian and through that have influenced our lives. Um, Rupert Murdoch has shown himself to be a great risk-taker. Not only has he bet his company on several occasions and won those bets, but every day he encourages risk amongst his editors and his journalists. Risk-taking is part of his DNA, and it flows through the company in many ways, which I'll explain shortly. 
It's the kind of risk that publishing companies without strong individual proprietors are largely unwilling to take. I don't intend to make this address part of a pot-stirring argy-bargy between News Corp and Fairfax, but if you look at the relative positions of the two companies, one with a strong proprietor, the other without, at the very least, I think it makes a case for strong leadership. Rupert didn't invent the role of media mogul. There were earlier models. In the first half of the 20th century, controversy raged in America over the influence of good or evil of William Randolph Hearst. He owned a chain of newspapers across the nation and used them to pursue his political ambitions, unsuccessfully, as it turned out. But Hearst's papers were accused of inventing the sensational and often salacious formats that became known as the yellow press. It's a derogatory term uh, that may have described their predilection for news from the courts and the underbelly of national life, but it doesn't describe their popularity. Hearst instinctively knew what people wanted, uh, and as a publisher he found no fault in giving them what they wanted. Neither has Rupert. In uh, the UK, the Canadian Max Aitken became Lord Beaverbrook. He was also a single-minded press baron with extraordinary management skills. He's remembered today for the Daily Express newspaper, which was propagandist for the British Empire. Uh, and during the 30s was the largest selling English language newspaper in the world with a circulation of more than 3 million. But Beaverbrook was more than just a press baron. He was also a politician. He presided over the manufacture of aircraft for the British war effort and was credited with winning the war of machines. He was a fully-fledged political player in Britain, often wrong, but never in doubt, just like Rupert. Rupert uh, Murdoch was a boy and a teenager in the year of Hearst and Beaverbrook, and these examples of press power and influence cannot have escaped him. Uh, if they did, he saw it on a smaller scale, not so much close to home, but at home, because his boyhood was built around accompanying his father, Sir Keith, as he built the Herald and Weekly Times group into a dominant force in Australian publishing. He's told stories of sitting at his father's feet while the old man negotiated this deal or that, so how it could not occur to him that he had ahead of him a lifetime of opportunity and the opportunity to exercise great influence is quite beyond me. Certainly, he absorbed many of his father's uh, thoughts, and only recently have we learned that the idea for the Australian was not Rupert's, but his father's. He explained to Paul Kelly in, in May that the uh, idea of a national newspaper able to explore the issues that united the nation was his father's dream. It was an impossible dream for the old man because the technologies did not exist to allow daily distribution nationally. And even if they had, the preoccupation with war and post-war recovery would have precluded it. And even when Rupert decided that the time had come for a national paper, he was somewhat reckless. He would never have said it at the time, but I believe the Australian was founded more on a dream and hope than a proper analysis and assessment of prevailing markets. It was a leap of faith, as Max Newton said, a wild idea, a preposterous concept in so many ways that any self-respecting board would have kiboshed it before it began. Um, only a headstrong young proprietor with his own skin in the game would have been reckless enough or rash enough to say, go. We heard yesterday of the early days of market research and polling. 
But back there, there was none. It was more of a gut feeling than anything else. I mean, Terry Bede yesterday told us how Rupert and he used to go sailing on the harbour. And I, mean, I, I recall one Christmas party we were sailing on the harbour and we booked the barbecues on Goat Island to have a barbecue after the, the sail. This was for the Daily Mirror. And uh, when we got onto Goat Island, we found that there was uh, another party already using the barbecue, an extended family of Greeks from uh, Liverpool. And rather than have a fight over who owned the barbecue, the parties merged. And as the, uh, the wine and the red cedar went down and the, and the dolmatis uh, got uh, exchanged for chops and all that sort of thing, we had a wonderful time on, uh, on Gate Island. And for two weeks after that, Rupert was going around thumping the table with all his editors about looking after stories from the, from the West. He said, I talk to people from the West all the time. But that was the nature of his market research. It was, it was more who you bumped into than any formal research of the kind that Terry and Sol Leberwick have, have, have taken on in the years since. Um, in 1964, newspaper publishing was a very cumbersome and costly process compared with today. Uh, these days, reporters take their phones or tablets or laptop into the field and their stories are captured on the first keystroke. But in the early 60s, as a copy boy, I used to go with reporters to events like big sporting occasions. The reporter would type his copy on a portable typewriter. I would then read that copy to a copy taker in the office who would um, take it all down with a second set of keystrokes. The story would then be subbed um, and then go to a linotype operator who would apply a third set of keystrokes. Eventually, it would appear in print, having gone through compositors, the stereotype machines and the press group. Today, those first keystrokes are manipulated on screen and produced as printing plates, sometimes thousands of kilometres from where they were generated. In 1964, Rupert was convinced that he could cobble together a national distribution system for one reason, and that is that Max Newton was already doing it on the Fin Review. Very much smaller scale and a bit slow. Um, Rupert thought he could improve on it. But it was being done, and that was one of the catalysts for Rupert to say, now is the time to go. He reasoned that, uh, Rupert reasoned that if Fairfax could do it, he could do it, so he hired Max to do it for him, and then put his plan to the board. Now, there was immediate pushback from the old guard directors, who they, they regarded their job as uh, keeping a steadying or restraining hand on the impulsive young man's shoulders. Um, but they were pillars of the Adelaide establishment, Sir Stanley Murray and Sir Ewan Waterman and Sir Edgar Bean, and their byword was prudence. Um, they, didn't, they didn't buy Rupert's boyish adventurism. Their job was to contain his intemperance, but Rupert pushed back hard and won um, guarded approval. They were on the condition, he was given the go-ahead by his board, on the condition that this project didn't put the whole company into loss. Well, it very nearly did that. The uh, News Limited profits in the year of the launch were $1.4 million on a turnover of $21 million. Um, I don't know what that's worth these days, inflation accounted, but they, they weren't huge numbers even back then. Profit of $1.4 million on a turnover of $21 million. In its first year, the Australian lost $1.4 million. 
uh, but it generated an extra $15 million of turnover for the group. And I have calculated for the 50 years in 50 days series that if you inflation adjust all the Australian losses for the first 20 years, they would amount to more than $250 million. But in the, um, um, in the profitable years between 1985 and 2007, the contribution to the company was in the order of $300 million. Um, how you inflation account the whole thing would be very, very difficult because I don't believe actual figures for actual years exist and we did some averaging. But um, if you look at the entire life of the Australian from Rupert's point of view, you would probably say it's washed its face. The post-GFC years, coupled with the double whammy of uh, the online digital revolution, have led to renewed losses. Um, but, as I say, overall, the entire exercise uh, has, for all intents and purposes, broken even in dollars. Now, in influence, you'd have to do a whole different set of calculations. But if we can go back to the start, Rupert's project was conceived and developed in total secrecy, but typically it was Rupert who let the cat out of the bag. Um, he decided uh, with Max Newton that the new paper had to be based in Canberra, the nation's capital. It would report Canberra to the nation and the nation to Canberra. Its primary market would be Canberra, and the national distribution was almost an afterthought, something to be developed in time. But we heard yesterday from Pat Clarks, who told how Rupert joked that he'd run the Canberra Times uh, out of business, only to be gazumped by the wily old Rupert Henderson, who took over and bulked up the Times. Um, that stymied uh, Rupert's plans to use Canberra as the, the, the financial backbone of the growth into a national newspaper. Um, so um, by the time Rupert's teams uh, began canvassing the suburbs of Canberra for potential subscribers, they found the Times was so, too deeply entrenched and they recognised to succeed, the Australian would need a bigger market than Canberra could provide, both for circulation sales and for advertising revenue. And an all-night planning session took place in, in Melbourne in March 1964, and this was... Uh, the, the whole project rested on this one meeting. It was in the Southern Cross Hotel in Melbourne. Um, Rupert was there with the... Um, the uh, senior executives from his, all his interstate companies, plus Newton and a, and a couple of others, and they all night worked on how we would do it, how we could do it, what were the possibilities, and they came up with a plan to, to make up the paper in Canberra, to fly the mats, so it's the cardboard impressions of the made-up pages, to Sydney and Melbourne for printing. Brisbane and Adelaide would be supplied by air later in the day. It was cumbersome. And it was a great leap in faith that all the elements that could go wrong would not go wrong. And, of course, they frequently did go wrong, especially in the winter when fogs uh, shut the Canberra airport regularly, provoking the need for the madcap and dangerous drives rushing the mats to Sydney along the goat track that was the Hume Highway in those days, uh, or to Cooma Airport, which was uh, traditionally above the fog line. It was a clunky system. And the amazing thing is that it was tried at all. Um, I might just 
provide here as an aside a glimpse of the way we were in those days. I, I mentioned selling subscriptions. Um, in those days, selling subscriptions or selling anything really, televisions, encyclopedias, insurance, all involved door-to-door salesmen. They were as ubiquitous then as dinner-time phone calls from Bombay were before the Do Not Call register was invented. Um, knocking on doors, hard-selling householders on the merits of their products, whatever it may be. Not everyone was very good at it. Rupert brought a team of young workers from Sydney to help out under the watchful eye of the Australian's administrative manager, Don Davies, who tells us his job was to look after the cars and the accommodation and and the likes uh, for all those early recruits in, uh, in Canberra. Uh, but Rupert, of course, told him to watch out for costs. So Don looked at the results of the door knockers and decided a couple of the young females from Sydney weren't pulling their weight, and he recommended that they should be sent home. But Rupert overruled him, and so it was that Miss Anna Torv, door knocker, continued door knocking for a while, before becoming the new Mrs. Murdoch and mother of Elizabeth Lachlan and James. The minutiae of history, eh? Uh, but anyway, the launch of the Australian was set for September. Remember, this is March 64. September was the launch. But the costs mounted and mounted in one day early in 1964, uh, in July, early in July, 64, Rupert marched through the newsroom clutching a bill for 7,000 quid telephone bill for 7,000 quid, and he declared, I can't take this any longer. I, I desperate, must have some revenue, must have some cash flow. So the launch, she decided, would be brought forward, uh, and after just one full dummy run, the Australian would be born on July 15, a Wednesday. Now, can you imagine a board of crusty old conservative directors doing that? They wouldn't have had the wit, the balls, or the capacity to do it. Only a headstrong proprietor, helped along by the likes of an equally headstrong Max Newton, uh, with all his enthusiasm and willingness to give it a go. Only somebody like Rupert could have called that shot and had the audacity to carry it through. Rupert had to fight his own uh, directors, and as the months passed, the, and as the initial curiosity waned, the costs rose and the losses mounted, and he had to continually ignore advice to give it all away. His most senior editors, his closest friends and advisers on papers like the News in Adelaide begged him to stop the losses. There was resentment throughout the company that built on the belief that Rupert was throwing away the fruits of all their hard labours on this crazy project. And Rupert knew that he had jumped prematurely into the space that he'd always dreamed might one day be available, a national newspaper, but he was determined not to let anybody have that space, and he hung on. Uh, the fact that the Australian was launched... The fact is the Australian was launched at the wrong time and in the wrong city. Two years later, the distribution problems were largely overcome by the introduction of facsimile systems and the move to Sydney. Fax technology had been around uh, since the 20s, and was used extensively by uh, the press to distribute wire photos. But it was never good enough to faithfully reproduce the small type required for a newspaper. Um, the, uh, the problem was overcome by the British Muirhead Company when it developed a square light reader to replace the traditional round light reader, thus eliminating distortion. Whoever would have understood that? 
<laughs> but it was the one technological breakthrough that made it possible to print four and three quarter point by facsimile. Uh, fax technology was hideously expensive. I think it cost something like $600,000 to buy those, uh, those uh, facsimile units back then. So what on earth that would be worth today, I don't know. It was hideously expensive to buy, but it, was, uh, it did deliver certainty for production schedules. It wasn't all plain sailing. Uh, costs still far outweighed revenue, and there was no end in sight for the bleeding. Circulations hovered around the 60,000 day level, sometimes as low as 50, far below the theoretical break-even of 80,000. But even when Adrian Deemer was able to get sales above 100,000, the costs of getting them there still left a big red hole in the P&L accounts. I have no doubt but for one thing, the Australian would have died in the early 70s. Uh, it was sucking the lifeblood out of News Limited's finances, and not only had the board worried, it had Rupert's bankers worried as well. What saved the Australian, in my view, was Rupert's audacious takeover of the news of the world in London. He saw an opportunity and he grabbed it. He convinced the Carr family, which held the majority shareholding in the old muckraker with its predilection for stories about vicars in fishnet stockings, and consequent, uh, because of its predilection for for brickers and, and fishnets, it had a sale of seven million a week. Um, anyway, he, Rupert convinced the cars that he was uh, a better ownership prospect than that terrible old bouncing check, Robert Maxwell. And the cars uh, got a stake in News Limited. Uh, one of them came to Australia to look at all his properties and was taken around the empire by senior staff members who found themselves in Alice Springs. And the... Uh, the um, the, the building in which the uh, Central Australian Advocates, which sold about 2,500 copies a week, was housed, was uh, an old tin shed on the outer the skirts of town, not very imposing at all. So <laughs> as the executives uh, took Sir William Carr on a drive down the main street of, uh, of Alice Springs, saying, we can't go to the factory today because there's industrial problems. Sorry about that. But it's over there, he said, pointing at the town hall or the post office. <laughs> <laughs> and he was suitably impressed with his imposing building. Yes, right now we'll go on to Darwin and have a, a great tour of, of, the, of what I own in Australia, he thought. Anyway, um, and yes, the car's got a stake in News Limited and uh, Rupert invaded Fleet Street, very quickly adding the sun to his presses, which were idle six days a week, uh, would have a seven-day operation. And the sun converted from a boring, unloved union broadsheep into a rambunctious, cheeky tabloid, and sales went through the roof. And soon, News International was throwing off millions of dollars a week, enough to support not only the Australian, but also in due course the Times as well. And those operations bankrolled Rupert's uh, great worldwide expansion into film, television, uh, both free-to-air and subscription services, satellites, cable news, books, inserts, online digital services, the whole box and dice. But without that moment where he was able to get those profits to first support the Australian, I believe he would have had to capitulate in due course. Now, the story of Murdoch's growth into a global mogul is well known. Um, 
he established himself um, uh, internationally and I believe became the most successful businessman Australia has ever produced. It's my contention that the amazing rise and rise of News Corp happened only because of the drive, the audacity, the cunning, the risk-taking and the skill of its proprietor. Can you imagine any board preoccupied with weighing risk and protecting shareholders' funds going for the things Rupert went for? Can you imagine the risk-averse Fred Hilmer ratcheting up the borrowings, betting the company on start-ups like the Australian or B-Sky-B in the UK or Fox News in the US? Could you imagine Roger Corbett doing it at Fairfax? I don't think so. It was Rupert who drove his boards and created the culture of competition and winning that led to his greatest triumphs and his greatest failures. Um, I accept that I might be making it sound as if Rupert did all this himself, not by any means. He hired smart people in the hope that they would share his vision, but not all of them were resounding successes. Max Newton was a flamboyant and it turned out a deeply flawed individual whose brilliance was central to the early days of the Oz. But in those days, Max was a warrior for free markets and Rupert, now a warrior for free markets, was in the thrall of Deputy Prime Minister John McEwen, who was a high priest of protectionism. And the fact that the proprietor and the editor had diametrically opposing views meant it was inevitable there would be tears. And Rupert had already learned the hard way that there could only be one boss. In 1960, he, he sacked his friend and mentor, Rowan Rivette, as editor of the news because Rivette wanted to go one way and Rupert didn't want to go there. So there could only be one boss. Newton at the Australian left after a year and Walter Comer came in to bring stability but without Newton's vigour and verve. Adrian Deemer unleashed new talents and new writers and new thinkers through his beautifully crafted pages. But while Rupert had originally positioned the Australian as a small L liberal publication, he was changing his thinking in Britain, beset by union problems, which he later fixed at Wapping, um, <laughs> which no board would have approved. Um, and, and, and he was also growing, uh, he was worried about union problems and he was growing in support of free market policies. So uh, he thought Adrian Deemer's small L liberal Australian wasn't being tough enough in its calls for economic and workplace reforms. So Deemer, in his um, memoir, says um, Rupert told him he wasn't producing the kind of paper he wanted, and Deemer, uh, reflecting the difficulties of understanding what his proprietor did want when his, review, when his views appeared to be in such a state of flux, said, I don't think you know what kind of paper you want. To which Rupert replied, that might be so, but I don't want you editing it. I think he came to later regret that because he once nominated Dima as one of his best editors. I think people here would probably agree with that. Some people. Um, in those early days, the Australian had a procession of editors, 17 in the first 25 years, and Rupert had a habit of briefing his new appointments about the kind of paper he wanted. He laid out the parameters and the policies and then very largely left them to get on with it. He has a reputation of being interfering, but that was not so on a day-to-day -day basis in my experience. He was a visiting proprietor, and it's true that the tension would ratchet up a notch or three when you knew Rupert was coming to town. 
And he used to deliver his critiques of the paper, which were quite often terrifying events. Uh, he'd go through the paper page after page, uh, pen in hand, ripping the pages with his pen. <laughs> um, and um, um, he, uh, he'd comment on headlines, stories, pictures, placement, and he would invariably just tear the paper and the editors quite apart. He'd be ruthless in his criticism, and he was capable of leaving editors who thought they were as tough as shaking, shivering wrecks. I've been through it more often than I care to remember, but I was always aware at the end of the process that, I knew, that he knew more about newspapers and journalism than I did. And I wonder if that could be said about Roger Corpett or the Fairfax board. Um, it was Rupert's hands-on approach that uh, developed in his senior journalist the unique News Corp culture. And put simply, that culture is don't be afraid. Don't worry about playing it safe. Playing it safe is the most dangerous place to be because you put you in the middle, and the middle is bland. The middle is death. You've got to be on the edge. It's got to be competitive. You've got to stand out. You have to stand for something, to be remembered for something, to make people come back to you because they remember you stand that Sandy took on this issue or that. As Sam Chisholm used to say, often wrong but never in doubt. There are risks in all of this, of course. There are risks that you can get it wrong. There are risks that some folk might be offended. Sometimes the offended ones are in a position to hurt you, like withdrawing advertising or rewriting political rules or regulation to curb you. A board of directors would quiver at these risks, but not a, a proprietor like Rupert. He was also very good at allowing failure. Uh, if it didn't work, it could be branded a failure, but Rupert would say, oh, well, we had a go. And that corporate culture is tolerant of, of failure because the flip side of that is don't be afraid. I once wrote a column asking what you had to do to get sacked. And this was after David Penberthy had uh, changed the reporter's copy to make the false accusation that the ANZ Bank had shifted its telephone call centre to Bombay or Mumbai in India. And the bank withdrew $4 million in advertising, but Penberthy survived. And when I questioned, uh, when I pointed out that in the old days $4 million <laughs> worth of advertising disappearing in smoke would have got you the sack, um, Penberthy was very angry with me and suggested that, uh, um, he, well, he, he, he was angry at my suggestion that taking a risk and failing and falling flat on your face might be considered a capital offence. Not anymore. It, um, excuse me. It may have had something to do with uh, Rupert's acknowledgement of his own fallibility. Um, I've talked to Rupert's successes but there were also failures. He once launched a, a business magazine, I think it was called Finance Week. We called it Business Week yesterday. It was Finance Week, I think. Um, it lasted three weeks. Um, he launched a takeover of the Herald and Weekly Times in 1979 and was beaten off, but at a handy profit. Uh, he overpriced, he overpaid for um, purchases of US properties such as TV Guide, um, and other high-priced purchases led to the accumulation of far too much debt. And he failed to ensure that that debt matured in a timely fashion. 
So when too much of it had to be repaid, he was not able to meet his obligation. And that near-death experience where the future of News Corp hung on the decision of a loans manager in an obscure Pittsburgh bank owed a mere $10 million of the borrowed billions, that clipped Rupert's wings for a few years in the early 90s while the underlying strength of his assets were brought to bear by the bankers to bring a return to financial capacity. And when um, the banks finally let him off the leash, he was off again, expanding, expanding, expanding. And then, of course, there was the matter of the phone hacking. No matter what glittering epitaph is proposed for Rupert Murdoch, it will inevitably be tarnished by the phone hacking saga. No matter how much his admirers spin his achievements, there will always be this great black cloud hanging over them. I've previously mentioned the News Corp culture of risk-taking and competitiveness. No market in the world, with the possible exception of the old Sydney afternoon paper war between the mirror and the sun, is or was as intensely competitive as Fleet Street uh, or the British national press. I've no doubt that this drive to beat the opposition spawned the practice of phone hacking. It was seen by its uh, practitioners as a tool provi for providing scoops, but in spite of the finger-pointing, the allegation and the cries that they must have known, we don't know if Rupert knew about it, but in a way it's immaterial because he accepts and has always accepted that the buck stops with him. As a human being, you can understand the discomfort he, he has felt by being labelled the dirty digger and worse, or as he once said about the abuse and invective thrown at him during the <coughs> takeover of the Wall Street Journal. You'd think I was a genocidal tyrant, but he's never complained about it. If the successes are his, the failures are his. It goes with the territory. He may not have hacked phones, but he led a company that did. All this plays into the chapter of Rupert Murdoch's life and career yet to be written. How will he be remembered when he's gone? What was his contribution or otherwise to the world? Was it overall positive or negative? Did he promote good or evil? When people look at his newspapers, they'll see the aforementioned bickers in fishnet stockings or topless page three girls. Or will they see the positives contributed by the Australian, the Times, the Wall Street Journal? Or will they see the Simpsons or the X-Files or Titanic or Avatar? And what will they make of it all? In my view, Rupert Murdoch's contribution to society has been both positive and immense. There are those who will say his, his products have pandered to the lowest common denominator. In other words, they've been popular. He learned very early that there was little profit in producing products that consumers didn't want to buy. But he's also balanced popular products like the Mirror or the Telegraph or the London Sun or the New York Post, with serious and influential mastheads like the Australian, the Times or the Journal. He demonstrated that he could walk and chew gum at the same time, and along the way he has provided a career for thousands of journalists, film, television producers, authors, scriptwriters, managers. There are Australians around the world in senior management positions inside and outside Rupert's companies who would not have been able to make their marks without getting a, a start through news. And it goes beyond just jobs. His family's support for the arts, for medical research, for children's health has been legendary. Rupert used to say he made it so his mother could give it away. I recognise that others will have a different view. I am an unabashed admirer. If there has to be a, a reckoning between good and evil, 
I will say um, good, and some of you will say evil. And I'll leave that question hanging for the simple reason that we're all entitled to our own view and there's no definitive answer yet. But I return to my original point that the existence of the Australian in this 50th anniversary week is because Rupert was and is an old-fashioned proprietor, not afraid to follow his instincts, not afraid to take risks, not afraid to fail. I don't believe we'll see that from collective decisions of any modern boards, just as I don't believe we'll see the likes of Rupert Murdoch again. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates and be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news and events.